Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. Hey, again, welcome today. So glad that you're here. I, um, I was a little torn this morning about whether to mention the World Series. Uh, I know that's a, it's a sore subject here in Houston. Oh, our Astros. It's like nobody could win a home game this year. It was crazy. But um, I, I was noticing during the uh, Game 7 of the World Series, there was this, this commercial that kept playing. You probably saw the commercial if you watched the game. And it was for Oculus Quest. I don't know if y'all saw that. So it's, it's a virtual reality a video game system that's sold by Facebook. And they show the people and they have the little goggles on, right? And the room that they're standing in, which is like a regular living room or, or you know, study, it transforms into this video game world. And, and the voice, there's this female voice narrating the whole time. And the words of the, the voice said, kind of intrigued me, and I'll just tell you what the voice said. The voice said, reality doesn't believe in the impossible. It doesn't believe in moving without limits or breaking the laws of physics. Reality will never let you enter magical realms, will never let you stop time or wield a lightsaber. But that doesn't mean you can't. You can have more than one body You can have more than one world to explore because reality is yours to defy. And then it freezes on this screen that says, defy reality. I was thinking about that. I I remember in philosophy class 1310 at Texas State University, go Bobcats, I was sitting in Dr. Zhu's class and one of the things that you talk about in philosophy is, is any of this real? Right? Is this all just something that's made up in our minds? Is it like the Matrix? If y'all know the movie from about 20 years ago, the Matrix, and it was all like this fake world. And I think this, uh, this commercial kind of brings up a question of what is reality? What is real? Is your faith, is Jesus, is God, is all this stuff like virtual unreality to you what is real and is there a a life that's more than just making it through more than just surviving because facebook as they're as they're marketing this device they're not telling you about the size of the screens they're not telling you about the the speed of the graphics what they're selling you on is an alternate reality And I think what we're going to look at today talks a lot about the ultimate reality of our lives. It's in Acts chapter 12. If you want to start turning there with me, 
This is a, a, a story, it's a, it's a credible story from the early church. And what we're going to see happening is this church that we've been talking about, this wildfire movement where the gospel was, was growing like wildfire. I mean, many, many people are coming to know the Lord through this early church. But at the same time, persecution begins to enter the story. And so that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1 and read along with me this morning. It says, about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. He woke him up and said, quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals, and he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening. But he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have this story of, of like people not realizing what is really happening here, right? Peter is in prison. That's his reality. He's bound between these two soldiers. He's sitting there in the cell. And then all of a sudden, this angel comes and wakes him, right? The chains fall off. He leads him out of the prison. And he doesn't realize that this is reality. This is, this is really happening. When he comes to his senses, he goes to this place where the church is praying for him. And he's knocking at the door. And they're like, this isn't really happening. It's just his ghost, and we have this interesting story about people not realizing what reality they were in. And so I, I, the story begins back at verse 1 with this persecution. And my first point this morning is this, that there is real opposition. There is real opposition. That is our reality 
King Herod Agrippa in this story. He's the grandson of Herod the Great that we read about at Christmas time when, when, when Jesus' family is on the run from Herod. This is now his grandson who's been given rule of these certain provinces. And now he's scoring political points by persecuting Christians. He saw an opportunity. He could increase his platform as a politician. And so he is scoring these points by pleasing the Jews and persecuting James and Peter and the church. We have a Peter who's done nothing against the law wrongfully accused in prison, and his reality is bleak. James had been executed, and we assume that that was the plan for Peter. As soon as this festival is over, the very next day, they're going to bring him out, and they're going to do to Peter exactly what they did to James. Can you imagine him sitting there and reflecting and thinking about what's going to happen? His reality was bleak. Now we read a story like this and it feels like a whole nother time and a whole nother world, but I, I think you know this, but this is still happening all over the world. There is real opposition. I was looking this week as I was studying this, there's a ministry called Open Doors USA and they studied in one year, so from November of 2017 to November of 2018, in the top 50 world watch list countries. These are the countries where persecution is the strongest. They've ranked them in the, at the top 50, just in those alone, 245 million Christians experienced high levels of persecution for their choice to follow Christ. One in nine Christians worldwide during that year experienced high levels of persecution. One in nine. 4,136 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons in those top 50 countries in one year. 2,625 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned in those top 50 world watch list countries. There is real opposition, and this is really happening right here, right now, in our world today. The very same things that Peter is experiencing. However, we here in the West, we don't experience that. So we think, well, praise God, we're so grateful, we have freedom of religion, but I think we fail to realize the reality that we are still facing very real opposition. Here's what I mean. In Ephesians 6, the apostle Paul, he shows us this, and he says this, if you know the portion about the armor of God, in Ephesians 6, verse 10, he says, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. I love that, his vast strength. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against what? The schemes of the devil? Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in 
the heavens, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, look, our battle is not with King Herod Agrippa. That's the conduit through which Peter is being persecuted, but that's not really it. There's something else happening here. It's our reality, and it is spiritual opposition, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. I just want to ask you this question. Is Satan and this spiritual opposition, is that just um, kind of make-believe for you? Is he imaginary in your theology or in your orthopraxy in how you live your life? Is, is spiritual opposition imaginary to you? Is it like virtual reality where you strap on your Bible goggles and you're like, oh, there's spiritual things, but then in reality when you take them off and you live your life, you're like, eh, that's superstitious stuff for people who are trying to explain away all the struggles of their life. Is it real? If your theology does not have room for real spiritual opposition, I just want to tell you, as your friend, you have an unbiblical theology. It's real. There is real opposition in the world. It is our reality. I was uh, thinking this week about the game Pokemon Go. I don't know if your kids have got the Pokemon Go. I think there were kids out front playing Pokemon Go. My, my son, I think, asked me for my phone this morning so that he could play Pokemon Go. And um, what's interesting about this is that the technology is called augmented reality. And what it is, is it's, you know, computer-generated graphics that get superimposed over real video feeds. So on your phone, you can, you know, have it and you're looking around through your camera and it's throwing little Pokemons into the scene. You can go and get those Pokemons and I, I guess you get points for that. I don't really know how that works. But I, I was thinking about that technology. I think all the parents thought, like, great. This is awesome because video games get our kids to walk around. Right? Parents were like, yes, like don't sit there and play video games all day. Like get a video game that makes you walk around, which was great until kids started walking into poles, right? Or off of curbs into streets or, or I saw online people that were playing Pokemon Go and walking into like a channel, right? They're falling off into bodies of water playing this silly Pokemon game. I, uh, I heard about a newscast where the, the, the weatherman is giving his news report and a, a female anchor walks through the camera angle and she's got her phone in front of her. She's walking around and he's like, I think she's trying to catch a Pokemon right now in the middle of the live newscast. And I found out this week that there have been 18 deaths and 60 injuries all from Pokemon Go in the last three years. But you know, I was thinking there's something about that that kind of rings true to me, that we live in an augmented reality, that we chase imaginary things. Here's what I mean. In our sinfulness, we, we have this big 
hole inside of us that we seek out fulfillment, we seek out um, some sort of version of joy, but we're chasing after stuff that doesn't really exist, right? It's like we think if I got more money and if I had more possessions or better possessions than what I have now, if I, if I had um, more sexual experiences or if I had this substance or if I'm indulging in these substances over and over again, then, then that's joy and that's fulfillment. And then we realize that it's just a Pokemon. Like it doesn't exist. It's not leading us there and in the meantime, in pursuing all that stuff, we're bumping ourselves into all kinds of spiritual darkness, opposition, deception. We fall off of cliffs down into lies and bondage and slavery, living in this augmented reality, this virtual unreality, because we don't recognize what's really happening in the spiritual realm, that there's a real opposition and there's a real enemy. According to Paul, he schemes. He's a schemer. He's clever. He's crafty. He uses deception and temptation and disunity and isolation, distraction, complacency, fear, shame, and sometimes overt, violent Oppression. It's real. But thankfully, that's not the only reality in the story because if that were the end of the story, that'd be a really depressing story. But that's not what we see. What we see here, my second point, is but God is bigger than our opposition. God is really bigger than the opposition. I love this story because here's Peter in his reality, he is bound in chains. And the reality is the next day he's going to be brought out and he's going to be executed. And the reality is that he's done nothing wrong to deserve any of that, but it's all for political gain. And that's his bleak reality at that moment. But God, but God, God sends an angel and he rescues Peter from the opposition that he's facing. The opposition was real, but so was the rescue. Peter didn't realize it at first, but when he came to his senses, he realized, wow, now I realize that the Lord has sent his angel. I realize the Lord has rescued me. And the reality is that the world is full of evil. And there is spiritual opposition, and that stuff gets up inside of people. But our God is bigger than the opposition. He's bigger than prisons. He's bigger than corrupt governments. He's bigger than chains. I love that when the angel touches him and wakes him up and he says, stand up. And when he stands up, the chains just fell off of him. Did you know that chains must obey the will of the Father? That when the father says, come off, chains come off on their own? Because they must obey the will of the father. He's bigger than chains and God can release you from what binds you. Isn't that good news today? <laughs> Isn't that good news? 
God can release us from what binds us. I don't know if you've ever felt bound. Like there's something like you just can't shake. It could be an eating disorder. It could be substance. It could be uh, this thing, this thought circle that swirls down in your mind. And you're like, I don't know how to break it. I don't know how to shake it off. I don't know what to do. I just want to tell you that must obey the Father's will. That he's bigger than what binds you. I love the iron gate. It says that there's an iron gate that's barring them into this prison and it just opens of its own. Iron gates must obey the Father's will. God opens things for us that are closed. Maybe you're, you've got things in your life and you know God's calling you to do something but it just feels closed. Like there's just no way it's gonna happen. I've got just like the iron gate here. And I want to tell you, iron gates must obey the Father's will. That he has the power to open things that are closed to you. We also know that what has kept us in our captivity, by the way, Peter is being kept behind iron bars in a prison. And what's been holding him in, now God just opens. And he's free. That's the power of our God. He really is bigger than the opposition. I had this tension inside of me. Maybe you felt it as we're reading the story. But I was kind of thinking, like, what's up with James getting the sword and Peter getting the rescue? Did y'all feel that as you're reading it? It's like, oh, side note, James got killed. But Peter, we have this amazing story about Peter. I was like, God, what's up with that? Why Peter and not James? What, what was happening there? My mind and my flesh started to go to, well, you know, maybe Peter was a little bit better than James, or I started thinking about all the things that maybe Peter did that James didn't do, and my mind starts going down that road, and I felt like the Spirit just kind of stopped me. It was like, there's, there's nothing down that road for you. That's a dead-end road, because that's not what the story's about. The story's not about what Peter did that James didn't do, or what James did that Peter didn't do. The story is about God's bigness, that God's bigger than opposition. By the way, Peter was ultimately martyred, hung upside down on a cross later in his life. So the story's not about that. It's about the bigness of God. And I love the details. Luke, the physician who's writing this, gives us details. And I just want you to look at verse five with me. He says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Look down at verse 12. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. Do you see the detail that Luke's trying to show us that against the backdrop of opposition and this beautiful story of rescue, amidst all of that, what we see is a church that was praying. My third point is this. Prayer brings God's reality into our reality. Prayer brings God's reality down into our reality. Peter was really in prison. It wasn't a figment of his imagination. He really was there. But the church was praying. And God breaks into that reality and changes the reality and says, you are free. Prayer brings it down into our reality. I uh, 
had the privilege to go to a conference and one of the speakers that were, was there, his name was Ryan Kwan. He's a pastor in California, but he's from Korea. His family's Korean and um, he grew up in Korean churches. Now, Korean churches have some like really unique things about them. And one of them is that they have a morning prayer hour. And what that is, is a um, five o'clock in the morning, all the people of the church come together and, and they pray. And he, he talks about being a, a student in seminary and he would stay in his office and he would work like way too late. He'd fall asleep in the office and then he would be woken up by a roar in the morning, like at 5 a.m., like he's, you know, sleeping on the couch in his office and he hears like, all these people like praying out loud. And that's how Koreans pray. They all pray out loud at the same time. And they're a praying church. And he talked about uh, his first time that he went to go pastor a predominantly Anglo church. And he said, I learned two things. The first was that they love the NFL, right? Soon as football season came along, man, church emptied out. It was like, man, we're not going to church today. We got some games on. He said the second thing he learned was that they don't pray. He says the Western church doesn't pray. Extraordinary prayer precedes extraordinary breakthroughs. There's a detail here I don't want you to miss. Is that all this was happening in the middle of the night. Peter, in the middle of the night, he's woken up by an angel. When he comes to his senses and realizes this is really happening, he goes to this person's house in the middle of the night and in the middle of the night, there are a bunch of people praying for him. When's the last time you got your friends together to pray all through the night for anything? Probably never. But extraordinary prayer brings extraordinary breakthroughs. Every spiritual awakening in history can be traced back to fervent, united prayer. Jesus himself, when he taught his disciples to pray, you, you know, the, 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 our God, right, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven, bringing God's reality into our reality I have a couple old authors that I love to read, and one was Andrew Murray. He, he said this about prayer. He says, we must begin to believe that God, in the mystery of prayer, has entrusted us with a force that can move the heavenly world and bring its power down to earth. Samuel Chadwick said it this way, he said, the prayer of faith links man's petition to the power of God. All men believe in the power of prayer to influence mind, develop character, and sanctify motive and will. But that is not all. Prayer is force. Prayer changes things. The Lord God of Elijah had sovereign and omnipotent power. And these were at the command of the prayer of faith. Every praying man knows of answers to prayer to which there is no explanation but in God. Samuel Chadwick went on to write, he said, the only thing more astonishing than God responding to an answering prayer is that men don't pray. 
It's the only thing more astonishing. To have all of heaven say, I will respond to your prayers to me. And for us to say, I don't have time for that. Extraordinary prayer precedes extraordinary breakthroughs. It brings God's reality into our reality. So what do we do in light of this? How does this change us? What does this call us to? What step of faith do we take in response? Well, if I could just borrow the words of that Oculus Quest commercial, I would say this, defy unreality. The first thing I think is that we have to perceive our reality, that there really is opposition. I had a, a friend of mine, great friend of mine. Um, he was uh, heavily involved in, in a college ministry with me, and we were at a retreat. It was a wonderful time. We're being prayed for, and um, as he's being prayed for, my friend, who I know and love and spent all this time with, all of a sudden, he starts acting really strange. And uh, I, I'll never forget this. He, he's kind of, his hands started to do kind of weird things. And then he started to say really hateful stuff to the person that was praying over him. And we're all like, what is going on here? And what happened was my friend had gotten himself into some sexual sin. And some evil thing had attached itself to him. And let me tell you, as a young man, that changed my ideas about sin. I'll be honest with you. I thought, you know, we can kind of dabble with this or dabble with that. We know it's wrong, but that we can say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I did not have in my theology a reality of spiritual opposition that was actually real. And I saw my friend that I loved be set free. To this day, he's free, flourishing, loves Jesus, has a family and kids. Awesome. But there was real opposition. I want to tell you, friends, as your pastor, not, I'm not trying to, to control you. I, I want to call you to do everything that you know to do in response to what God has called you to, to do, how to live your life. His commands to you are not burdensome. They're not so that he can get his little thumb on you and be like, oh, I got control of that one now. His command to you is life. It is for your good. It is for your blessing. It's for your flourishing. It's not to, to get a little, you know, uh, automaton. He loves you. And when he calls us to live in holiness, it's, it's, for, it's for us. It's for our blessing. So we have to perceive reality. We have to defy the unreality that we have in our minds, the, 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 the message of our world that says all of that stuff is superstitious and, and it's, it's not real. It's just people explaining away their problems. Our God is the absolute. He's the fixed point where everything finds their place and their meaning. We have to perceive reality. Second, I think this calls us to pray fervently. That word fervent. It literally means very hot. It's, it's something that um, exhibits or is marked by great intensity of feeling. And we see that little detail. But the church was praying fervently. I want to call us as a church 
to be a church that prays, to pray fervently. If, if I could make a mark on you, if you're just here for a season and if there's one thing that I could impart to you as you're here is that you would say, you know, I really didn't care about praying, but after being there, I just started to love to pray. Like, I would love that to be the story that you could tell about this church, that this was a place where you learned how to pray. We need to pray fervently. And don't misuse God's sovereignty to dismiss your lack of fervency and justify your complacency. Did you catch that? Don't misuse God's sovereignty to dismiss your lack of fervency and justify your complacency. Here's what I mean. We can say, God is sovereign. He knows everything we need before we ask him, why bother? He's sovereign, he knows. He'll work. And what we're doing is we're just justifying our own lack of prayer. Don't misuse his sovereignty. Lastly, I think it calls us to pray together. Verse 12, many had assembled and were praying. As a church, we've embraced a rhythm of community. We have uh, house churches that meet on Wednesday night. In our first uh, week of every month, what we do is we gather to pray not just to have some other thing to do, but because we believe that prayer really changes things. As we read from Samuel Chadwick, prayer is force. And we know that we want to see the same kind of gospel movement that this early church saw. We're not going to see that by strategy and sermons. We're going to see it by the people of God fervently praying together. And that God will hear from heaven and he will respond that we will see a great move of his spirit here in response to prayer. So the first Wednesday of every month, what we're doing is we're lighting the fire and we're calling for the wind. So this Wednesday, we're, we're going to be praying together at uh, the Friends of North Richmond building at 6.30 p.m. We end at 8 p.m. We have child care for your kids. And what we do is we just gather and we worship and we pray. We pray for our city. So perceive reality. Pray fervently and pray together. I want to close with this this morning. I uh, was at this conference, and one of the pastors there, his name was Larry Wachemeyer, and uh, great guy, great story. He had gone to uh, pastor a church in Los Angeles, and he had just read all of these great uh, church growth books, and the, the number one thing for having a growing, thriving church was ample parking. That's what he read. So he takes this job at this church that's declining. It's a church where the community around it has really just kind of changed, right? The, the, the demographic of the church and the demographic of the area were a total mismatch, and so he inherits this situation, a church in decline that's dying, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And he walks out to the parking lot, and there are 39 spaces. He thought, thanks, God. This will never work. <laughs> but what happened was they began to pray. They were gathered. There were 40 of them. They were gathered in the sanctuary one evening to pray. 
They started to pray for their church, and then something shifted. They started to pray for the community and for the lost. In the middle of praying, somebody barges through the back door, and it's a big, scary-looking dude. And in that part of L.A., when that happens, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, right? We're, so, someone's going to get shot or, or mugged or something. And the guy comes in, and he says, is this a church? And someone in the back was like, yes, like, how can we help you? He's like, I want to know about Jesus. In the middle of praying, a church saw a person barge in the doors, asking, how can I learn about Jesus? Larry went on to say that later through this time period, by the way, the church went on to flourish. They've planted all kinds of churches. The church itself is about 900 people. It still has 37 parking spaces. <laughs> it's crazy what God's done. But he told a story. He said one day he was praying, and he, he really sensed that God gave him a vision, like a real vision. And um, he was picturing himself, uh, like if you've ever been to the ocean, like, in, uh, like where it's not the Gulf of Mexico, but like the Caribbean, where you can see through the water. It's amazing. If you haven't done that before, you should treat yourself and do that sometime. It's awesome. And, and he's, he's diving into this blue water, and he's going down deep and he's looking at shells and getting things. But you know that feeling when you're, when you're swimming and you go down deep and you go like, I'm running out of air. And so you kind of go up as quick as you can and you get to the surface and you're like, <sighs> and he gets the big breath and then he dives back down again and he's working with the stuff below. And then he, you know, again, over and over again. And in the middle of the vision, this massive snorkel comes down and falls in front of him. And he sensed the Lord say, I want you to breathe the air of heaven as you work in the depths below. Friends, prayer is the air we breathe. It's, it's our connection like a snorkel, like fresh breath, even in the depths of the water that we have fresh breath to breathe over and over and over again. So, as we work in the depths below, as we face real opposition, let's be a church that prays. Amen? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.